Welcome to Chinuch Today. I am your host, Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield. Please join me as we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to episode two of season two of Chinuch Today. This is Yerachmiel Garfield and I am very excited about today's episode because it really touches me in a personal way as I have an opportunity to interview my father-in-law, Rabbi Simcha Kok, who is the Minal of Machinas Ner Yisrael. You know, I've been in the family, Baruch Hashem, well over 20 years, getting married in May of 1999. And I've talked a lot to my father-in-law, and I visited him when he was a Rebbe in his classroom, and heard many schmoozen and seen him in action. But I never sat down and really dug into him, his history, how he got to be a Machanach, and his role currently as the Manal of the Machina. And it was such an enlightening conversation to get to like know someone I know so well, but never really dug in. And so I'm thrilled to share with so many of you who will be interested, who went to Nair Yisrael or are aware of Nair Yisrael, who know about the Yeshiva and the Machina, will find this really fascinating to get an insider's look into Rabbi Cook, his background, how he ended up in the Machina, in Nair Yisrael, and also the yeshiva itself, the mechina, how it operates, some of the areas of strength and some of the challenges that are faced. This podcast does not fit into any of the categories we have yet explored, doesn't represent a particular program that is being innovative, so to speak. But it does speak about the reality of the chinuch landscape, what some of our yeshivas, our high schools look like, what are some of the challenges that face the Talmidim in those yeshivas. And Nair Yisrael, I believe, is one of the largest boys' high school yeshiva in America. And therefore, it really does give us an insight into one of the oldest, most successful boys' high schools and yeshivas in the United States and the people behind it and what some of their mindsets are as they run this Maisid. So I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did getting to talk to this very, very special mechanic, someone who's dedicated his entire life, really, to this effort and does such an amazing job developing B'nai Torah for the future, who leave the Mechina so committed to their learning and to their Avodah Hashem year after year. Welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. I'm sitting down with the veteran mechanic Rabbi Simcha Cook, the Manal of Mechina Sner Yisrael, and also an outstanding Share an outstanding father-in-law for the last 24 years that I've been in his family. Hello, Rabbi Cook. Hello, Rabbi Garfield. <laughs> nice to meet you uh, under these circumstances. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So tell us, we always start out, you're currently in Baltimore where you run a very large boys' yeshiva, boys' high school, probably the largest. And uh, let's see how you got here. So I understand from your accent, you were not born in the United States of America. Where were you born, and what brought you to America? I was born in the United Kingdom, Oh. in London. Was that before the Revolution? In fact, it was during the Civil War. <laughs> um, first of all, we don't call it a re- it Really, you're right, it was before the Revolution. We always felt that the colonialists were very uh, revolting, and um, as a result, um, we decided to let them have their freedom and independence. And uh, I was born much after that. So I was born after the Second World War. And I lived in London and we lived in Bournemouth, which is a very popular seaside, was a very popular seaside resort back in the 40s and the 50s. And the 60s, and before HSL became the place of vacations and visits, it was Bournemouth, was, to Bournemouth to London was like the Catskills to New York. Mm-hmm. And I was, then we moved. But you lived there all year round. Yeah, we lived there. My father owned a hotel, and we lived there. What was schooling like there? I went to public school, and in the evenings and Sunday mornings, we went to Cheder in the local shul. Was the public school, did it have other Jews, or was it all Goyim? What was the... The public school was, there were other Jews in the school. There was, Bournemouth had a nice-sized Jewish community, but we, I didn't feel any um, anti-Semitism there. We were treated, uh, it was, everybody was treated equal. I had no problems with the school. And it was just a regular public school? Regular public school. 
I'm sure back in the day, it was a very proper public school with a lot of standards and regulations. Yes. I'll, I'll, I, Nothing to do with Mechim Sinai Yisrael, but I, we'll get to that later. I will, I'll, I'll discuss that later because <laughs> let me move on. We moved okay. to London. And once I moved, we moved to London, then we you know there's a much more vibrant Jewish community. I went to a Jewish school. It was called, in England, it was called primary school. And then at the age of 11, you take an examination. And if you pass it, then you go to a grammar school. So, Baruch Hashem, I passed the examination, and I went to grammar school. If you failed that exam, you went to what was called a secondary modern school, and your uh, your chances of getting into university were slim. If you went to grammar school, you had a much better chance. So already at 11, 12, your 11, trajectory 12, right. is sort yes. of set. Oh. There's a lot of pressure to do well. Yeah. You know, there. And and so then I went after so after the exam I started um, it's called first form I started at uh, the age of uh, eleven and a half and I started a um, grammar school which is a public school grammar school is interesting this grammar school was a popular grammar school and thirty percent of the boys were Jewish hmm. and the first form as it was called they were divided equally three forms th- about thirty in each form in each class. And 90 boys all together. And it was a really uh, proper, very proper uh, grammar school. It was very close to being what we call a public school, means like the Eton, Harrow, uh, Winchester, very um, high class private schools. Uh, it, was a, it was like a public school, but it was very high class. And for example, we had in sports, we played rugby in the winter and cricket in the summer. And, um, hmm. and we were divided into houses. When you say we, the Does that involve you? Yes, so everybody. The whole, Rugby, eh? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't discuss my future <laughs> career. Of, of, all I can say is that it wasn't pleasant. I chipped my tooth one time because my was called a scrum. And I had like 20 cleats in my mouth at the right. same time. So it yeah, it's a rough. It's a rough sport. It's rough yeah, sport. Not for a nice Jewish boy. Right. Know. So you were there 11 from for middle school? Is that That's a middle school, I guess, beginning of high school, yeah, right? Like from 11 and a half till uh, 18. Uh-huh. What was interesting, you know, we find the houses now, I mean, I'm not sure who your uh, listening clientele are, but those who have uh, availed themselves of the uh, Harry Potter uh, stories would know what a house is. They would find the four houses. Mm. Obviously, it wasn't the same time. Are it? you in the same house for the, all the time, or every year? Yeah, it's no. Like... In the first year, the first one is just one for just the first formers, you know, the, as a freshman, and then for the rest of the year, the rest of your stay in school, you're in a house. And that's your that's your wow. house. Wow, what was your house? Do you remember? Yes, I think my house was. Um, it's hard to remember. There were different names of the houses. I think Portman House. There were four different names of the houses. Do they have different meadows or different, different focuses? No, no, the different color. Uh-huh. Uh, you know everything with badges, and then they you competed against each other in areas of let's say sports, obviously, and debates. There was you know debating societies, and there were other areas where. And it's a whole year of competition. Yeah. And at the end, someone wins, or someone wins. Yeah, and then they get they get the trophy, the house wow. trophy. That was it. So anyway, that was uh, my. And, but what I wanted to share with your uh, your listeners, there were there were three classes. And there were about 10 Jewish boys in each class. And that's the same first and second. comes to the third form, they were divided up into, into levels. We were, stream, uh, we were stream, right? So there was three, one, three, two, and three, three. The, the top three, th- the top third, the middle third, and the lower third. And then things changed. The, um, the ratio of Jews to Christians was very different. Then the first, the highest third form were 20... Jewish boys and wow. so that changed the whole wow. uh, uh, picture of things. Jewish boys were smart and they worked hard. We also had our own every morning. The uh, the, the school had their services, where they uh, went to prayers, with, and then we had our own private services. And then we marched into the main room to the uh, playing of an organ. It was very formal, and there. We uh, listened to the announcements that were made every day. The school, the school was very old-time, old-fashioned. There was a, administration of corporal punishment. Were you ever the recipient? I hate to get so personal, but it's an interesting perspective. Were you ever the recipient of corporal punishment as a student? No. I was threatened. 
But actually never you never actually received, never received it. Never received it. Okay. Because that would be an interesting perspective how that yeah. would have impacted you. Yeah. Um, and I assume of the 20 boys in the highest level, none of them were really getting ready for yeshiva life. Okay, so let me tell you about the frumkite. Yeah. Now, in, let's say, in my class, there were about five of us who were Shemesh Shabbos. Mm-hmm. Shemesh Shabbos meant that you left early on Friday afternoon. And that was okay. That was okay, mm-hmm. yes. And also, lunch. There was a kosher school meal services that was provided in a local shul. Wow. And we used to go there, take a bus there during lunchtime and get a, a good kosher lunch. Wow. At a local shul. That's pretty advanced yes. for that. Yes. Okay. How'd you end up in yeshiva from that? Oh, so, that's, that's, so it wasn't from my school friends. It, it, we, I lived in a neighborhood that was very Jewish called St. John's Wood, where the chief rabbi at that time was um, Dr. Brody, subsequently Harry Jacobowitz. And then, and they were both there, um, the house they lived in, the official chief rabbi's residence was in St. John's Wood. And then those, at least for them, there was a very wealthy Jewish community, but the Shemir Shabbos was not so great. And uh, there was no such thing as a yeshiva boy. But I used to do two things. I used to walk on a Shabbos afternoon to an area called Golders Green, which was a Jewish neighborhood, and attended a um, youth group called the Ezra, which had started in, in, in Germany. And, um, and then I joined the monks. Monks was the German shul, the equivalent of, let's say, Breuer's. And I joined uh, the, and they had a Talmud Torah called Monks Talmud Torah. And I used to go there on Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And that's where I first got my, uh, I went to Cheder till I was 13. After I was 13, Cheder sort of ended. And then I found my father together with me. We found this place to go to, and that's where I joined the Talmud Torah. Who were the teachers? Are they like old European rabbis? No, not at all. Not at all. We had Rabbi Monk, who was, uh, he taught us Tanakh, he taught us Eov, he taught us Yeshaya. And talked to us Boratius. He even put a safer out on Boratius. Mm-hmm. And then we had the Rob of the North Hendon Industrial, Rabbi Cooper. Rabbi Cooper was a young Gateshead Musmach, Talmud of the Mechtever Yoho. And he was very, very instrumental in my growth in, in Yeshiva. He made it learning very Geschmack. And he was followed by Rabbi Feldman, who was the, the, the assistant Rob in monks and then later became the full-time rov in monks wow okay so there was there was a decent amount of jewish life for you even yeah, though you absolutely. weren't formally in a jewish school right you had all these jewish kids around your kosher yeah. food shmir shabbos shabbos programming learning it, it wasn't as bleak as no not at all and then <clears throat> my um my friends so and i joined in the summer we had ezra camp and so it became that my it would seem to me as a uh Continuation of my uh, Jewish studies, I would go to Yeshiva to go to either Gateshead. That's why I would have gone to Gateshead. Mm. And for about a year, I was accepted to university. I chose Newcastle University, which is a very prestigious university. I chose Newcastle University because of its proximity to Gateshead. And I felt that even when I'm in university, if I have time off, I could just, as they say, hop on a bus, cross the river, the Tyne, Newcastle on time and, and learning the yeshiva even after I was no longer officially part of the yeshiva. So I chose Newcastle. They gave me a deferment for a year and um, I was. What did you want to study? Chemistry. Did you have a specific career in mind? Yes. To teach chemistry in the machina? <laughs> no. Isn't that the highest level of chemistry you could get to? I was. <laughs> um, I wouldn't... Uh, like what do you have in mind? What were you I thinking? I was thinking of becoming a professor of chemistry. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. So you already think about education then? Yes. So I, how did that education piece develop already then? Because uh, usually I ask, like, how did you become Machanach? And here the answer is you already had a, a feeling wanted, for that early I like to teach. I, what was your first opportunity was, to teach? I was, I was naturally... I was like, I don't know. It's just... I have... Um, I, I, was, I hope I'm not boring your audience, but... I started a youth group. The youth group, a there was a few Jewish kids in the neighborhood where I lived, and younger boys. My two brothers were part of it, and I started a Shabbos afternoon group with them. Mm. And I used to pick them up from their various houses, and bring them to, oh, nice. to the shul there. And I used to we make a, a program every afternoon. So you serve, you know, refreshments and tell them the story, really? wow, play beautiful. a few games. 
Like Pirche or Yeah, whatever. like a Pirche, like a sort of like modified mm-hmm. Pirche. Cool. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, uh, I don't know, I suppose that was like inborn. I enjoyed like uh, working with others and helping others. Beautiful. Okay, so chemistry teacher, Newcastle, Gateshead. Right. All right, we're far away from Yeshiva Lane or right. Garrison. Right. Probably. Right. So bring us. How do we get here? Oh, it's all the, the American Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Three off. I decided I'm going to teach these Yankees a lesson, you know. Now, this is a real complicated story. I can't really go with the whole details, but it's a very long story. My un- my father, Oliver Shom, <clears throat> um, when he left Lithuania at the tender age of 13, he was brought by his uncle to uh, Chicago, and he was only able to stay there for four and a half years because the American government didn't want him to stay more longer than he could become a, a citizen or have uh, an alien at least, a, a legal, he was a legal immigrant, don't get any wrong ideas over <laughs> here. He was a legal immigrant, but so then he had to leave and he went to England and he went to Yeshiva in England. But there was always this close, in, in my father's uncle basically adopted him. So my, and they kept a correspondence and my father's uncle used to come to visit us periodically. My sister got married in April. And my uncle came, my father's uncle came to visit in April, he came to the Chasna. And he said to me, you know, come to an American yeshiva, why go to Gateshead? So I was uh, adventurous. Yeah, why was that compelling? I would be like, no. Because I was adventurous. Uh-huh. You know, America, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And That is true, that is true. <laughs> And the, the land of mass killings and mass school massacres. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away. Yeah, those, me, those days me, we were, me, nothing me. Nothing could be further forgive from me, the truth. Yeah. So I wanted to, so... But you you felt like there was time, you wanted the adventure a little bit. I wanted bit. the adventure. Some of my friends went to Israeli yeshivas. I didn't want to go to Israeli yeshiva because I didn't want to spend the precious time I had to master Ivrit. Okay. I much preferred to spend the precious time I had to master American Yiddish. English. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, so there's the whole America is open to you now. Right. You got Tells where he oh, was from, right? Right, right. right. Um, you have New York, right? So my uncle recommended Neusel. He felt Neusel was the right place. I'm not sure why, but that's... did he have a Kesher to Neusel? Not really, no. He just mm. like he knew about it, and he felt it was more broad-minded, so to speak, which is perhaps relevant to your audience. Tells was too, pardon me, I want to old say school. Was, Yes, it was very conformist, mm-hmm. and he felt that Neusel was much more uh, laissez-faire. And Rabbi Neuberger, Oliver Shalom, was the banal uh, of the yeshiva, the, the CEO, so to speak. Mm-hmm. He used to come periodically to America, to, to, to London, to visit his mother. He used to come every year to visit his mother, who lived in Golders Green. So he met Rabbi Feldman, who was my Rebbe, and uh, and they say try okay, it out try that in those days uh, beginners were not beginners to be accepted or not beginners were where to where to be placed so i took my permits for money i bought myself a one-way ticket with my parents blessings and especially since it was my money and uh, i got on the plane and i came for rosh chodesh el in 1964. wow you really didn't know much about what you were gonna i had no idea Right. And um, <laughs> I didn't know anybody. It's unbelievable. Yeah, those <laughs> today, Bacha wants to go to Yeshiva. He has to have at least five friends who he's Yeah, and you go online, you right. go to stories, right. and you connect your uncle, aunt, sister, brother. Right. So I had relatives in America, both my father's side and my mother's side, close relatives, you know, cousins, I should say, mm-hmm. and uh, Rabbi Stein. Do you have anyone in Baltimore? I no, I had no. But I, the only thing that I had in Baltimore was it was a young couple who made. So I use the word Aliyah mm-hmm. on the same day as me. They arrived that same Sunday, and the, the, he took up a teaching position in one of the local institutions. Mm. So I had some, and I knew them very well. And I had a cash, and that was a place to wow. to relax on Shabbos once and to go there for okay. a meal or whatever it was. And here I was, so here I came, you know, totally stranger, a new place. I don't know, right? okay. And uh, how many Bachar were, were in Israel in the sixties? Probably mm-hmm. about a hundred. Okay. In the yeshiva, there's no machina. There was machina. Machina was about. 70, 75, something and like that. And then 100 base measures, yeah. 140. Yeah. And it was not in its current location. It was in Garrison, right? Boulevard. Garrison Boulevard. They just opened a new dormitory. And that's how. And then Mabdavid, Oliver Shalom, gave me a Bechina. And for some reason, he luckily put me in the first year. Mm-hmm. Who, who gave that? Rabbi Nusbaum. Mm-hmm. Who's still, can I know, I'm still here. Right, right, right. 
Yeah. And and I was in that shit together with Rabbi Yisachar Friend, mm. Rabbi Yosef Kalatsky, and many other people who are well known in the in the Jewish community. And I came to that year, and then I had a deferment from the yeshiva, from the college, Newcastle. Did you find that your background, you know, was sufficient? Like, all these people were not coming from uh, from Lake Rechader. They were coming from all over, right? So did you find your background was sufficient relative to theirs? Or did you feel no. like you were coming from a weaker place? or Like, what was American Chinuch like? Okay, so I'll explain to you. I was 18. They were 16. Uh-huh. And Why they, were they sixteen? Because in those days they pushed them up much quicker. They didn't, you know, mm. they they didn't stay in the machina. So then they came in like tenth grade or eleventh grade. Or really? Yeah. You know. uh-huh. And what I found very fascinating is their level of skills were much higher than mine. They'd been learning hours, uh, you know, for uh, at least a couple of years, hours a day, and mine was like maybe three hours, two hours a week, you know, two or three hours a week. That was it. Their skills were much better, and their proficiency. And their knowledge was greater than mine. However, I felt that in terms of thinking skills, of I, I felt I, I was more advanced than there was. What this, the education I had received, the secular education, was far superior to theirs. Um, English language and English literature. I was like much, analytical skills. Almost. Yes. So therefore, I marveled at their skills. And I had ma- I was amazed at the questions that they asked, which I felt were much on a less mature level than, than, than... You also were older. Yes, I was also older. I was two years older and more advanced in my, uh, you know, in, in school. I, so who are some of the people who had the most hushpa on you in those earlier years? Okay. So doing that's a good question. So during that first year, I, I developed a nice relationship with Robin Nussbaum. Mm-hmm. My cousin, the son of this uncle was learned in Lakewood together with him, so they knew each other, so mm. that was an inn I had with the Rebbe. And I also became very close with Rabbi Avram Zelig Shafransky, of blessed memory. He was at the Kölm, he became, he was a Rebbe in the Mechina, he got married, and he died two years later from mm. cancer. Aye. But he had a very big hash on me. Did he have children? He had two daughters. Interesting. Um, okay, and so you were slated to go back. I was slated to go back at the end of the year. I really enjoyed myself, and I um, told my parents that you know, like, would it be right if I, I asked my parents would it be better? As I said I asked, would they mind if I stay a second year? Is this in writing or on the phone? Just curious. It's all in writing. In oh, yeah, writing. that's an interesting point. <laughs> phone was unheard. I called. So once. how long does it take? It takes two weeks. You I write called, it again. I, I phone. I called once a, a year. Rosh Hashanah. The uh, the price of phone calls was beyond their budget, and and I used to call Rosh And then when you called, it wasn't like that. You pick up the phone and dial. You dial the operator. The operator, I'd like to make a reverse charge call to the thing. So what's the number? I gave them. She said, okay, I, I will call you back. Then they had to call the number. Then they connect you. And they say, would you accept a reverse charge call from so so? Mm-hmm. My mother said yes. And then uh, that was the phone call. Wow. Uh, just Rosh Hashanah. So, so you're writing a letter saying, can I we, stay another right, year? Right, we wrote letters back and forth, correspondence. Okay. Every week I wrote a letter, one of those aerograms. Oh, really? Those yeah, blue yeah, aerograms. Those, and they wrote to me, and I wrote to them, and I wrote, and I thought, well, they... So they said, if the college will let you do that, then they're agreeable. So I um, wrote to the college where I was going to go, and they said, yes, but you have to keep up with your skills. You have to, you're have you going to forget. So you have to have, uh, on a yearly basis, uh, a, a weekly basis, a, a, a tutor to help you. I, I don't know, there's a hashkocha. Somehow I found this uh, professor in Hopkins, and he agreed to, he never charged me, and he agreed to meet me. One, I used to come to his house once a week, and he uh, and he uh, kept me up with my skills. Wow. I showed him my exam papers, not the written, the question papers from the A-levels, which I took in, in London, and he said it was equivalent to two years of college in America. Wow. So I did that. And then... Were you still writing Nussbaum, your second year? So no, second year I went to Robert Kolevsky. I really loved Grigorevsky Shia. I liked the whole learning. I was like, I don't know, Rebbe put in my mind to somehow. And I thought to myself, that's it. Why? I don't want to go back. Why become a professor of chemistry? Why don't I become a professor of Talmud? So, you know, the bug had bitten. <laughs> and I decided I want to stay. So now, of course, I have to convince my parents. Mm. I want to tell you something. It's a lot easier to convince your parents when you're 3,000 miles away <laughs> than when you're next door, you know? 
And my parents were very nice about it. And that was the problem because if I had been home, I could not have argued with them. It wasn't, there was no like screaming, shouting, yeah, yeah, yeah. forcing. It was appeal to Seichel. My father would say, you've got to support a wife and you need a parnos. You know, well, how are you going to support? How are you going to I wouldn't have no answer for him. What are we going to tell him? Yes. I'm going to learn curl. You know, he was very reasonable. So I... Uh, okay, you slipped through. I slipped through. So then what the clincher was, I wrote to them. I had two things working on my side. Mary Newberger went back to England, as I mentioned before. He met my parents and he explained to them. And he came back and he told me, I think it's okay. He says, your father learned in the in Lithuanian yeshivas. He's much of what Torah is. He's much of it. And therefore, that's what you want to do. He's not going to stand in your way. I did write to my parents. And I give advice to young Bokram all the time. For 18-year-old Bokram, I, I was now I was 20 years old. I told my parents, I said, maybe you're right. And maybe I'm wrong. And he said, but at this age of my life, I have to make my decision. Because that's what life's all about. Bechira. You've got to make your own decision. And you listen to advice, and then you decide. And this is what I want to do, and I really expect that you feel it's not the right thing, but, you know, everybody has to do their thing. And so he came back from Newburgh, and he said two things. He said, your father understands what Torah is, and he and he and he's masking. Okay. And I'll tell you why. It was, a, it was a Nassoyan for my father. I'll tell you in a second. And your mother? Your mother is whatever your father says she goes <laughs> along with, you know? You know, Kitsana Isha, that's what she does, uh, will of her husband. So my father, it was a big concern because my father was an educated man and and he had very difficult Parnassa problems and he had to do much uh, a, below his level of being, his level of intellect. He was a, he was a greengrocer, he had to set potatoes and onions upstairs and deliveries. And he didn't want me to go through the same thing like every father, you know, he wanted like all the immigrants. My son, better for their son, right, right. my son, the doctor, my All son, right. the lawyer. Right. So for him, it was a very big sign. But they agreed. So then I became, so I stayed in Shiva. And, and at that time, you already had in mind to be a Mechanach? Yes. So you weren't just learning, not that you weren't just learning, no. but you were learning with, intent, learning with a plan. With so yes, with a plan, yes. So during those years, before you got married, while you were a Bachar, did you dabble in, in it? Did you have Chaburas? Very, you... very much so. I was involved... I was an elder Bokhr. I had I learned with Yanka Bokhrim, I gave Khabuz to Yanka Bokhrim. I was already like, you know, I was a Mashpia in the in the Mechina Bokhrim. With the Mechina? Yes, with the Mechina. Was it more integrated then? Because now you have two different Bati Medrash. We also had two different Bati Medrashim then. So but you like In Garrison. You... No, but Night Seder was like today. Night Seder we learned together in the uh -huh. same base Medrash and I learned with the Bokhr. I also did it to supplement my uh, income, you know, to learn with the Bokhr and um but I was involved. Then I became a dorm counselor. Mm -hmm. You know, so I always had a bent for um, being mechanic. So in there, you saw you managed went through the ranks, so to right. speak. I mean, right. starting with yeah. as a tutor and then right. in the dorm. And right. was there anyone at that time who you remember being significantly must be on you outside of the people we talked about? Did you already have a relationship with Rav Weinberg, or did that come? No, later? that was much later. Much later. Okay. And how about Rav Ruderman? We talked. I was I was close with him. We, I, I used to schmooze with him and. He, He's also, he was my on me. Would you say he had a unique chinuch approach? Or? Yes. He, the, the, that, I think, you know, is the um, shita of Ne'i Yisrael. He, he never rammed anything down my throat. He never say, said, you know, you've got to say and learn, you've got to say and learn. He was always encouraging, and, and he did it in a subtle way that, you know, I felt that's the right thing. To do. He was makshiv tayri, and he would say, like, you know, instead of saying, you've got to eat this cookie, you know how to how delicious it is, and therefore you want to eat it yourself. Mm. So he always was machshiv the Torah, the cheshivas of Torah, the stories he told us about the Gedolim and pre-war Europe. And, you know, and, the, and so that is what was, I think was mashpia on me. You know, and Roklevsky was a very big mashpia in his, uh, in his uh, kishmak in the Torah. You know, he made learning so alive and so enjoyable. And that's really... Uh, Probably. Whose share was it? It went from Rukhlevsky to Ruderman? No, was it? no, it was Rabbi Nussbaum, Rukhlevsky, Rabdovi Kronglas, the Mashkiach. Oh, wow. okay. And then from him went to the base Medrash, which was Rosh Hashiva. So when did you become a Rebbe, an actual Rebbe? How did that happen? Your first job? Okay, so after we got married, I was learning Kurdle. And then Rabbi Naftali Kaplan was the Mashkiach in the Mechina, and he made Aliyah, I became the Mashkiach in Kotoro, Beyako, I think, I'm not sure which one. He left America, 
so he needed a substitute for the last six weeks of this man in the summer because he had to get ready to make his return. So he asked me to substitute. So I took a, I took his shear for um, the six weeks. So in those nice. days, did they have more than one ninth grade shear, or was it? This was the eleventh grade shear. Eleventh grade shear. Was there more than one, um, like a higher or lower? Or was, do you I, remember? I can't remember. There okay. were two shearim. There was, there was he was the eleventh grade rabbi. Okay, that was it. Yeah. So I said his shear for him in eleventh grade, and then I liked it very much, and Baruch Hashem, it was successful, and then. That was it. Then, then he left, and then I had to decide. You know, they they need a new rebbe for for eleventh grade. So, Rebbe Captain advised me against it. Against doing eleventh for the next year, the coming year, mm. not to apply for the job, so to speak. He says because it's a difficult class, mm. and you won't be successful as a first year. You know, it's it's not going to be easy, and. You will be blamed. Nobody's going to say, oh, it's a difficult class. They'll say, Rabbi Cook is not a good Rabbi. Don't do it. Listen wow. to me. It was a very important advice because others who did fell into the... Fell mm. fell so you ended up not teaching the next year? No, the next year I learned in Kylo. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I, I met know. Rabbi Weinberg. He was Rosh Kylo, and I got close with him. And then the next year, Rabbi Sitner, who was a ninth grade Rabbi, decided to leave. He wanted to go to Israel. He wanted to adopt a child. And so, the Rosh Hashivas came over to me and asked me if I would become the ninth grade Rebbe. So, I don't know, learned a year in the Kolo. And he, well, she wanted to make it. He said, really, the ninth grade Rebbe, you'll be able to learn in the Kolo in the afternoon. It's just in the mornings. And so, therefore, one day you're learning that much, you know. Okay. So, I asked Rabbi Weinberg what I should do. And gave me some very good advice. I won't go into the whole details, but based on his advice, again, he didn't tell me what to do. He made clarified what the options are, what the choices I'm making, and I uh, thought about it. And uh, hmm. it's inter- I want to just share one little side point with you. When I met with him the first time to ask him, his first question was, what does your wife say about hmm. it? Which understanding, you know, you want to do it, you know, like, you got to take into consideration your wife's feelings. How does she feel about it? What's her suggestion? It was a very important thing. So anyway, so I uh, made that decision, and I became the ninth grade rabbi. And how long did you do that before you became the assistant? No, system. Yeah, well, I did that. What was for, the next? The next step was a rabbi for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that probably propelled me forward was night seder. I don't know whether it's a mailuch or song, but I've always like. It bothers me. I think I got that from my father. When I see things that are not done right, somehow, it bothers me. I like to see if I can fix it. I did that mm-hmm. even as a young boy in, in school. You know, in the yeshiva, I was always at the forefront of uh, innovations and things like that. So it bothered me. Night said it was pretty much a shambles. Mm-hmm. And the way it was being taken care of and the way uh, it just it wasn't working properly. So. I said, we've got, to, you know, we've got to do something about it. So Ritalna said to me, so do you want to take care of Night Seder? Okay, I'll take care of Night Seder. So I took care of Night Seder and got it, you know, straightened it up. Got a system going and it worked out very well. So that was my first dabbling, so to speak, in areas beyond being a ninth grade rabbi. And then a few years later, Ritalna got sick and he asked me if I would you know, become an assistant. So I joined him as an assistant, not official, it was never an official thing, it was like, mm-hmm. you know, off the record, so to speak. And I helped Roy Tellner because things were getting, you know, very difficult. He, uh, the machine was growing by leaps and bounds. And we're talking in the 90s now? We're talking, I don't remember 80, the dates. 80, 80, I was never okay. good at dates. Okay. I remember 1215 was the Magna Carta that okay. I remember. Okay. <laughs> Let's say I, Probably in the 90s. Yeah. Right? So then I became assistant to him, and a bit of, as I said before, it was unofficial, and um, and we, we continued to work together. And that continued until right, Talnabi got really sick, and then I became an official assistant Manile, and then, you know, he was, as he was, his his uh, abilities to run the machina were lessened because of his physical disabilities. And I became more and more manile. And how long have you been the full manile for? I think. Was it like 12 years? 12 years. 12 years. 
But okay, the two years before that, I was really running it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now that we got your history, nice uh, long history of how you started off in the resort town in England and came on to the Tyra resort town of Yeshiva Lane and run this amazing machina. How many students, how many Talmidim do you have around? 240. Can I and is have? that max? Can you have more? We've had just... 256. That's the highest. Highest, yes. The dorm could take, I guess. Yeah. So let's understand a little about the machina. How would you explain, if you had to give someone an explanation of what distinguishes Neri Yisrael as a, we're talking about the machina, that you think are some of the unique characteristics about it? Okay, first, what is unique is the relationship Rebbe Talmud. Now, of course, Many yeshivas have a very good working relationship with Rebbe Talmud. What's unique about Israel is that the Rebbeim live on campus, and every Friday night they go to the Rebbe's house for an onik, and they have an opportunity to talk to the Rebbe, to schmooze with the Rebbe, to see the Rebbe in the less, for, less formal setting of a Magid Shia mm-hmm. and Talmudim listening to him. And they see him in his house, they see him with his children, they see his wife, they partake of her cooking, her baking, and that creates a very nice, uh, it's very, and, and fosters a working relationship between the Rebbe and the Talmud. That's unique. That's one special. The second thing about Nehru Israel is we have a very diverse stu- student body. Hmm. We try to be everything to everybody. Obviously, we, can, we fail, but I think our successes outweigh our failures, and as long as our successes outweigh the failures, then we'll keep on doing it. What do you mean by diversity? It means I can have a bocha who is, as to quote, whatever the word yeshivish means, but at least he has the external features, you know, the pears behind the ears, bushy pears sometimes, and sits his flowing in the wind, and, and his English is sprinkled with Yiddishisms. A good boy, he's not exposed so much to the world culture on one end of the spectrum. The other end, I can have a bochum from a very modern home whose parents may be Shemeshavas, but they're, you know, they're more uh, a modern, less stringent on on, on the taruvas between uh, males and females. They're, you know, they don't, are not so strict in their, in their behavior, and they come from that type of home. And this boy maybe watches television, he's playing on a computer, was that part of like someone's vision, like the Rashiva's vision, or Tendler's vision, or your vision? How did that happen? That was Rosh Hashiva, Rosh Hashiva mean Rav Budeman, and Rabbi Neuberger. I mean, they wanted the Mechina yes. to be that way. They wanted that Mechina should be a place where, when, when, when Rabbi Tendler told me an interesting thing. Rabbi Tendler said, when I became an Arab, he, Rabbi Tendler became an Arab in 1963, he said, I wanted to make Nehisha another Philadelphia. He told me this himself personally. He said, and then I realized that it's not another Philadelphia, and I'm not going to make it another Philadelphia, and I'm going to make it into what the Machinist Nehus felt that Rabbi Neuberger and Rosh Hashiva Ruderman envisage. And, and we accept our biggest competition in the 60s was from MTA. Hmm. We tried to attract Bochrim, who would have gone otherwise to MTA. Hmm. We didn't attract Bochrim who would have gone to Philadelphia hotels. That wasn't our uh, source. And in the early days, we had two buses going at Benazmanim to New York. Most of the Bokhim came from New York. You have to remember, at that time, there was no Yaakov Bender's uh, Darche. There was no really that type of yeshiva existing in New York. And, and out of town, there were a few out of town yeshivas. So that was our clientele. Has that changed? Yes. We have very few Bachman from New York, maybe three or four Bachman from New York. Really? Yeah. And the largest percentage of Bachman come from Baltimore, from local. And that's been a slow change over the oh, years? Oh, yes. I, mean, I first started teaching, a third were from Baltimore. Now it's a good two-thirds. Interesting. Do you see that continuing to... Yes. The Baltimore community, the Jewish community, the Frum community is growing. And the out-of-town bochum are diminishing because many of the out-of-town yeshiva are starting their own yeshivas. Parents are reluctant to send a bochum. Why should I send my bochum to away from ninth grade at 14 years old to an out-of-town yeshiva? I want him home. And I have a yeshiva in my doorstep that he can go to. Mm-hmm. What they fail to see is 
there, there's something special about going to an out-of-town yeshiva, there's something special about being in a, in a yeshiva in a dormitory where there's a night seder and, and, a, and a, after, after Mariv, you become a yeshiva bocha. It's difficult to become a yeshiva bocha when you go home every night. It's more like a day school mentality. Mm-hmm. That's, so I think we're unique in that sense also in providing this diverse... Uh, How about in terms of the, the rigor of the learning? Um, I know the... I don't know if you're the only yeshiva that does it, but I know the Bikiyas program that you have with the Bikinas, you know, the urgency that's put into the the learning seems to be unique or special. How did you create that and what, what is that? Okay, so the two people who get credit for that, really Chaim Mintz, who is the yeshiva in um, Staten Island and the founder of Ura. Was he here? He used to be here? I'm, I think he did learn here. His yeah. brother's here. And yeah, Moshe yeah. Mintz, and he learned here also for maybe a year or two or something okay. like that. I'm not, you have to be correct me if I'm wrong on that. But, and Rabbi Avram Zedek Safransky, who was the one who was on me, he started this Bikiyas program, and he perfected it. And what we have now in this Bikiyas program is, and other yeshivas have followed suit, meaning that we learn another Masechta besides the yeshiva Masechta. So, Brochus, or Megillah, Erich, and Soto, different Rosh Hashanah. We finish it in the year. Every... Thursday night during Mishma, they chaza what they learned during the week, which is about one and a half to two blah. Friday morning, they continue that chazara, and before they are dismissed, they take a bechina. Every perik, depending on the size of the perik, but every seven, eight, ten blah, whatever it is, they take another quarter perik bechina. At the end of the year, they take a mesechta bechina. And I have to tell you that this is unique, that anybody who came to visit, comes to visit us cannot get over the tremendous hasmada that exists on the last week of this month where everybody's mom was chazering that Masechta. Rosh Hashiva was here the last day of this month, the day before the last day of this month, and he was looking, he said he couldn't get over the learning, the culture. I said, he would, couldn't believe that this, I said, yeah, tomorrow they're going home. He said, I can't. Hmm. He never saw such a thing. So Baruch Hashem, so Rabbi Velik, so fancy, you know, and then the Rebbeim, Rabbi Kalman Wein, Rabbi should be gesund. Um, really pushed the program. He gives a schmooze that Mamish turns on the Bachram and it's become a very uh, important part of... It's beautiful. I mean, I know Bachram that I've learned with remember Masechtas. They walk away with four Masechtas and, you know, they, they remember it, many of them. They put a lot of time into it. It's a great thing to have under your belt, plus the Ian. Right. So. When the Daf Yomi started in the Dorim, I got a few calls from different uh, Balabatim now. He said, and they called me and said, I remember, remember you in the dorm first time. Uh-huh. And I remember, I couldn't believe it. I still remember it. I still remember the things. Oh, it's like, it's like it stayed in their memory. Yeah. yeah. So every yeshiva has a fail rate, you know, kids who don't make it. And I remember when I first got married, you were the assistant to Rabbi Tendler. It might have been in his heyday of his, uh, it was a more strict approach to things. And I would meet people and they'd say, oh, you know, where'd you learn? Now you throw. And I was always, you know, that was proud or it was easy to say that I was Aiden uh, Byers and because they would always be angry or by Tendler if they got kicked out. And they liked you because you were like the champion of the underdog back in the day. And I imagine that that's changed now that you're the sitting in the seat you are. Do you anticipate in advance that there are certain kids who aren't going to make it? And how do you address the many students out there who might be listening who it just wasn't a good fit for and have sort of a negative memory of it? That is a very hard question. I don't know how to start. I want to start like this. You know, when Rabbi Tenlo took over the Mechina, the Mechina was in a very sorry straits. They, they, they were both were smoking on Shabbos. There were things going on that were quite shocking even in today's standards. And the turnover from Manalim was yearly. Every year they took a different Manalim. Finally, Rabbi Weinberg, who was a Rebbe, he was a first-year Rebbe in the yeshiva, and he said, Yosef, you've got to take over the Mechina. Rabbi Weinberg himself was Manal for a year, hmm. and it didn't work. Rabbi Weinberg's fantastic skills were not... Uh, the ones that would work to make a machina successful. So, my wife, so Rotella was, you know, he really, tough. He, because he could not, that, that the only way to, he would have started the machina, the machina would never go off the ground. So he was very tough. And he asked Bachram to leave, who he felt were detrimental. And he, and he ran a very tough program. 
he mellowed as time went on, but he was tough. And he was not, his, his level of tolerance of a Baruch staying in the yeshiva was uh, pretty low. And uh, he asked Baruch to leave. But didn't that bother you back in the day? Yes, it did. And uh, we disagreed on many times on this. We never, ever disagreed on policy. We never, ever disagreed on shita. We never disagreed on what the direction of the machina should be. If that would have happened, we could not have gotten along together. We both felt you have to do the best for each bach individually. We both felt you have to do the best for each for the machina as a klal. And sometimes the two clashed. What was good for the bacha wasn't always good for the machina as a klal. Ratelna was many times people don't realize he 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 let Bokhim stay who really he felt didn't belong here, but he took them under his wing. He took a Bokhim to his house because he couldn't keep him in the dorm, but he didn't want to kick him out because he felt that he would go off the derech. So he took him into his house to live by him in the house. You know, but that sometimes he felt that if a Bokhim stays here, his behavior is detrimental to the machine. He can't keep him here. And, and, I, and I agree with that. Do you find now that you're in this role that you're in that your Malamit Tzchus may be more on him back then now that you see it from his perspective? Probably. Probably. You need an advocate. Bokhim needs an advocate. I once, I, I, I told a Rabbi, I brought a Raya. I brought a tells Shimon and Lavi, you know, I regret that Shaul became king. He didn't care what I wanted to do. Fire him. <laughs> So Shimon said, I can't do that. And he spent a whole night, the Medrash says, arguing with Rabbi Shalom, so to speak, and, you know, pleading that he should say. So it always bothered me. Rabbi Shalom is running the world. He knows what's better. You know better than Rabbi Shalom. So what are you arguing with Rabbi Shalom? Rabbi Shalom says, I don't want him to be the Melech anymore. It's not the right person. So I, I saw from that, the Shimon was a Rebbe. He was Shaul's Rebbe. A Rebbe advocates for his Talmud. The Rabbi Shalom will decide what's right or wrong. But your job is to advocate. So a Rebbe advocates for the Talmud. No, tell them we'll decide if you should keep or not. And, and I feel the same way, you know. A Rebbe should advocate for the Talmud. I'll have to make the horrible decision if I have to. But the the, Talmud, the Rebbe should never side with the Manal. He has to fight the Manal. He's got to fight for his Talmud. Are there times that you just know that this is going to be problematic, but due to either pressure from the parents or whatever political reasons, or that you'll take a, a Talmud knowing that it's going to be a disaster? Okay. So I'll, I'll share with you this. I don't know if I should share with you this, but I will share. <laughs> I may come to, to regret it. When I give up a hair, okay, I, together with um, Yosef Nuburg, is my assistant, and we give up a hair. And at the end of the hair, and I read his reports, I feel that it's not going to be, it won't be good. It's not, it's not the right fit. Meaning that I feel that he'll come here, and as much as depends want, I can pretty much assess that it's not, there'll be clashes in English, there'll be clashes in the dormitory, there'll be clashes in the river. It's not right. I'm not taking it. So I will say, no, I'm not accepting you. Very, very hard not to accept the kid because when you say no and not accepting him, the parents will come complaining, the rov of the shul will come to you, and the last year's rebbe will come to you, and the manal of the previous school. There's an onslaught of, of uh, pressure. And, and it happens to me sometimes. I one time I didn't want to accept a kid. And the, everybody called me. And if, every rov in town, you know, and, and I wouldn't accept, I didn't bend. But sometimes I do buckle under. Sometimes the pressure becomes too great. Even if you say to them, listen, I've been doing this for, I don't know, 35 years, or however many years. I'm telling you, it's not going to work. They don't hear it. I'm a cook. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know my son. Uh -huh. It'll work out. I say, it hasn't worked out until now. What do you think? A miracle will happen. I, you know, that's what the parent will tell me. Yeah. I remember parents saying that. They said, don't worry, he'll come mm -hmm. here. There'll be. I'm, it's, I, I would, I'm willing to say 99% of the time that I have taken the kid under pressure, it didn't work. And, and, and uh, I, I, every time I do that, every time it fails, I say to myself, that's it. I'm not taking it. You should write a letter to them. And yeah. say, put this away somewhere, sealed, and we'll open it when the bucker graduates. And then you can write, if he graduated, I was wrong. But if you're opening this letter prior to graduation, please be Michael. You know, because I think people walk away with such a bitter taste mm -hmm. 
because they feel that the yeshiva wasn't right to them or it was unfair. No one really says, yeah, you're right. I am not, you know, I, I assume they don't usually put up a white flag yeah. and say, uh, you're right, Rabbi Cook, this wasn't for me. It turns into a whole, he said, she said, what said, he said, you said. So, you know, that's uh, that's something to consider. Has the yeshiva culture changed over the last number of years? Is it, Would you say it's a, is it a softer place? Is it a harsher place? Is it, how has it changed in, ter- in terms of this culture? It has changed. I used to go to Thermosone conventions and... I picked up a different relationship and attitude from Analim to Talmidim than we had in our institution. Rotelner was a product of the 50s. He was a Manal who established the Mechina and made it into what it is today, which would not have happened without him. Nobody else could do it. But there was a certain old school, which I experienced in public school, where, you know, the teacher makes the decisions, you listen to the teacher, and there's no uh, molly-coddling of the, of, the, of the students. And that, that I tried to change that. And I, 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 I you know, talked this openly with Rabbi Talmud. You know, we needed to change our, our relationship with the Talmudim. It can't be that we're telling you what to do, and you listen to us, and that's the way it is. There had to be much more of an ongoing discussion and... Um, sharing of ideas, and I think that we were pretty successful in that. The relationship that I have with the Bochum, I think, is much less severe and much less harsh than it was with Rotenla. I'm not able to do some of the things he did to say, some, I, you know, to insist on certain things is very difficult to do. Do you anticipate that continuing to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of giving Rishus, for example, I'm much more lenient in giving Rishos than Rotelna was, but I feel I have to. You know, I have to take in. What does giving Rishos mean? Let's say a bracha wants to go away for a chasna, mm-hmm. right? So obviously for a brother, sister, immediate sibling. What about a cousin? I let bracha go for cousins, you know. What about a second cousin? You know, it, it, you, know you have to weigh it up. Sometimes right, that can right. be very tough. I say, no, right. not giving Rishos. Right. You know, it depends on the relationship. You know, kids say, I want to go to my second cousin. Yeah, yeah. okay. Who's the second cousin? Have, the have parents changed? When I first became a Rebbe, the parents were older than me. Mm. And I felt like, who am I? Mm. I'm a 26-year-old, you know, telling a 40-year-old father and mother how to raise their children. You know? And I felt, even though they didn't say it, like they're looking at me like I'm like, like a kid, you know, like, what are you telling us what to do? So I was, I, I was intimidated by parents. Now I look at them as like kids, you know. <laughs> like, what do you know about parenting mm-hmm. and raising children? Let me tell you how to do it. But have parents changed? I think so, yes. I'll share you a little um, anecdote. A town little co-op, the family, and there was a problem with the kid. So the, the wife would answer the phone. He said, okay, can I speak to your husband, please? And then um, Helen's on the phone, Rotenla, you know. Like, by nature, you call the parent, you speak to the husband, you speak mm. to the father. That changed. Especially when a mother would say, what, you can't talk to me about it? Right, right. You, can't, you can't do that today. You can't say, can I speak to your mm-hmm. husband? <laughs> no, right. Right, of course I not. can say, can you both get on the phone? Right. I can do it. 100%. 100%. Do you think it's easier for a kid to be successful in today's machina or in the machina of the 80s or 90s? How do you define successful? Learning well, connecting to their abayim, and feeling good about their experience. Yeah. I think it's much easier now. Why? Because of the relationship. Even though that now we have cell phones and smartphones and ChatGPT, that's why I asked you how you define successful. Okay, you know, you think we have cell phones, smartphones. Okay, and what? And there were no missionaries in the sixties. There was no Playboy magazine, and I didn't have to send the boy home because he shoplifted a magazine from the local Seven Eleven. The the tivers and the smoking. There wasn't smoking. Right. It was just that it was harder, harder to do it, but the, the kids were kids, you know. And to be successful means you have to overcome your, your tigers and, and control yourself and do the things that are right. And I don't think that, I think, uh, I think it's, so if you measure success by that, I think we have a very success, a high success rate. Let's say this boy's leaving the machina. Nobody leaves to go to day college. And Bokhrim, how do I define success? Bokhrim want to come back to Yeshiva. Why do they want to come back to Yeshiva? Because they want to continue their learning. 
Bochum, we spend the, the last six months of 12th grade, Rabbi, the two Rebbein, the 12th grade Rebbein, myself and Rabbi Yosef, talking to Bochum where they should go. Mm-hmm. And they want to go someplace. They want to go. Continue in this. Continue, right. They want that's to certainly success. That, that's success. They're inspired. They're inspired so, enough to want to So if I could, tell me if this is right, but if I understand what you're saying is, the Yitzhar has been here in the 80s and the 90s and 2000, 2010. And uh, maybe the Yitzhar is a little more easy to access, but the Mechina has become much more student-focused in a way that it really helps the Talmud to nurture them and their relationship with uh, learning and Akadosh Baruch in a way that's much more compelling, and therefore a lot of Bakram are very successful. That is correct. For people who are listening, I'm just curious, how, who would you describe as the kind of bucher that you think should apply to Nari Yisrael and does really well here? What would be the formula? Okay, before I, wanna, before I answer that question, I want to share something else with your listeners. Sometimes a parent will say, I can't send to Nari Yisrael. It's huge. It's 240 bucher. My child will get lost and fall through the cracks. And, and I want to say very forcefully, that's a misconception. Now, what happens, a bottle will come here for a hair and he'll be overwhelmed. You know, there's, there's this building, there's that building. You know, for me, I, can't, I live here, but, you know, but like for somebody trying the first time, they were, which way do I go? How do I go? Mm. It is overwhelming. But I, I, so I want to dispel that feeling because the Rebbeim are close to the Talmudim, and it's true, there may be 240 bottom here. But each Rebbe has a very good relationship with the Talmud. All the Rebbeim know exactly what's going on with the Talmud. I'm well informed of what's going on with the Talmud. The Rebbeim keep me. If a Bach is sick, and he's the local Bach, parents will call me. If not, he's in the dorm. And the Rebbe will come to me and say, So, I don't show up to Shir today. I'll go over and visit him. Over the Meshkir will go and visit him. You know, we'll make sure that, that he's taken care of. So the size is not. And you can go to another Shiva where there are 35 Bachim in the Shir. And we have, in our ninth grade, 22, 24, maybe sometimes 26. His coming is 22 in each ninth grade share. So, you know, he's not going to get lost. Whereas you, you, you're 30 bachim in a ninth grade share, not every bachim is going to get to the Rebbe. It doesn't know what will happen. So that is a... Um, that I would like to get that message across to your listeners. And what was the other thing you... I was asking about who the ideal Talmud is. The ideal Talmud. Who should apply to Nari Yisrael? Who listening to this, who's thinking about different yeshivas, you know, that this would be the kind of kid that would do best here? Can you a Bach who's sincere about wanting to grow and is willing to make certain sacrifices in terms of not going home, uh, if he's coming from out of town, let's say, that he doesn't go home till every four weeks and he's, and he's willing to do that and he's willing to curtail some of his accesses that he had until now in terms of devices. He's willing to forgo that. And he wants to learn, and he wants to grow, and he wants to become a Talmud Chochem. And he will get that. A normal Bacher, he will leave at the end of the 12th grade. As a, I like to use normal. He'll be he'll, a normal meaning that he can understand other Bacherim. He's learned to live with Abraham. You can understand that not everybody is the same. And not everybody has the same behaviors as he does. And there can be a Bachar who doesn't do the same. Or he, he learns to tolerate and to live and see. There's, there's all different ways to be over Hashem within the confines of Torah and, and you know, Torah-dicker um, way of life. But you can be a Ben Torah giving a shear every day. You can be a Ben Torah... Uh, going to work every day and being conveyed you eat in the Torah. That's the sort of bacha I would love to have who's at the under- who can understand and wants to grow and wants to be normal and wants to become a Ben Torah and a Talmud Chochem. Last question as we wrap up is you know, what inspires you to keep doing this? You've been doing this for a number of years. You know, spoiler alert, your beard has a lot more white in it than, than mine. And uh, a lot of people at your stage in career would be saying, you know, Shine, I've, I've done it, I've been the Manal, I've been a Rebbe, it's time to, to hang up the cleats. But I don't get that sense talking to you. I feel like you're as energized as ever, you're as motivated as ever. What is it that, that gives you that, 
that drive, and, and maybe there's a story or a Talmud you can think of that sort of typifies the success that keeps you going. I'm a Belgaiva. <laughs> and, and if you can find me some, if I could find somebody who I think continue to the job that I'm doing, I'm ready to retire today. Not true. I disagree with you. <laughs> as hard as it is for me to disagree with the Schwer, and I do it with, as you know, with great caution and respect, no, it's not true. You love it. You enjoy it. It keeps you going. You you live off it. All right. You might be a Balgaiva, by the way. I'm not debating <laughs> on that. <laughs> we'll make sure that's yeah, clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, the other part I disagree with. Okay. What inspires me to keep on going? The boys are away. We ended this man on the uh, 22nd of June or something like that. They go, go home, right? I'm not the Rebbe. I'm the Manal. Okay. We're recording this in mid-July. Okay. Damn that. So, this Friday, I spent the whole afternoon on the phone. I got over 20 phone calls from Bachram. Rebbe has a summer. They call to find them to do, and to just tell me, say hello. I called just to say good Shabbos. Wow. I feel that if I'm, I'm if, as long as Bachram, you know, appreciate it and want to continue that relationship and want to maintain it and, you know, and, uh, and sometimes I drop hints about wanting to retire. And mm. No, Rebbe, you can't retire. You know, like I suppose that keeps me going, feeling success, knowing that I can, as long as I feel I can help Bachram and 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 travel the difficult roads that they do have. Some of them sit down and schmooze with them and help them. And as long as Rebbe gives me that courage to be able to do it and gives me the skill to be able to do it, you know, I went to visit them in camp and I spent a lot of time talking to individual Bachram and encouraging them and helping them deal with their, their difficulties, and I'm willing to do that, then I'll, I'll keep on going. Once I feel that I can't do it anymore and I'm not being successful and, and they don't want me to, you know, take care of things, then, you know, it's time to hang up the cleats. But so far, Baruch Hashem, I'm able to continue to do it, and I do enjoy it. I enjoy helping Baruch I could say, as an observer of you and the work that you do, that, uh, you know, you have Talmidim who are, I don't know how old, 50, 60 years old, who feel so mukusher to you, have such a karsatov to you, and guys who are 15 and 16 who feel the same way. And uh, it's a remarkable career to be able to span so many decades of, of impacting children, Yiddish children. And, you know, I know you could say many, many stories of Talmidim that wrote you and called you and reminded us. And, uh, you know, Mr. Shem, you'll continue for many years. Klai Yisrael needs you, so... Keep it up. I want to say one more thing. I, what also gives me a big is that I have close tell medium, Baruch Hashem, from all uh, areas. And as I have close tell medium who are, who's, I have a very close Talmud who's, who's a Rebbe in a prominent yeshiva in Israel. And he calls me Rebbe and he, he can't do enough, can't do enough for me. He was in my yeshiva many years ago. And he's much like a, a Rebbe in yeshiva. And I have close tell medium who are, a, a wild kids, you know, are still doing Wildersachen uh, and this, and they feel, you know, so as long as I have that diverse spectrum of, of Talmudim and I can keep that up, then, then, you know. If someone wanted to apply for the Makina, how should they reach out? Usually I end with that. Is there a website or an email? We have a website. What is that? Nook at... Uh, .org, probably, right? No, uh, .edu. www.nirc.edu and they can find any information they they want there. They should go to the high school and then once they click on the high school it tells you how to apply and how to access, you know. And uh, Bochum who applied to us, we like, not like, we. part of their application process is to come here and spend the Shabbos here. We don't do Shabbatones. We don't have a special Shabbos. We we have a series of Shabbos. They come, we can have 16, 17, 18 Bochum at a time. We take care of them, but the child, this way they get to see the yeshiva if they know it's for them. We get to see them, not just a 25-minute uh, interview. Right. And, and that's that's the way we do things. Kodesh Baruch will give you the, the physic and the, the wisdom to keep doing what you're doing, and you should get a lot of nakas from your daughter and her husband and their children. And thank you so much for this wonderful interview. Thank you very much for, for giving me the chance to express myself, and I feel that if my son-in-law would have come to the Mechina, oh. he would have accomplished even more than what he's accomplished then. Oh, man, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. <laughs> we could agree on that. Okay, okay all the best. All right.
Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. As you could hear, I always have a wonderful time with my father-in-law. I never make it too easy for him. And uh, I really enjoyed asking him some of these questions and exploring some of these topics. And there Yisrael is a very special yeshiva. People really uh, grow from it and love it. I am sorry to share that one of the people referenced in the podcast who played such a critical role in the yeshiva, Rav Kalman Weinreb, who was a 10th grade rebbe for many, many years, unfortunately was nifter between the time that we recorded this and now. Through the morning process and hearing the different haspedim, we really were able to highlight and see what an amazing mechanic he was and what a role he played in setting the tone for the mechina of loving learning and focusing on talmidim and really caring about igniting their fire. And Rai Weinreb was a uh, very close chaver to my father-in-law, who really they were together for all the years doing the work that they did in the Machina. Thank you for joining us. We're always interested in ideas and feedback. You could send an email to chinuchtodaypodcast at gmail.com. And as you know, sharing is caring. So make sure you share a podcast with others, rate us, leave us good reviews. And that way we'll continue to grow and spread the good word. Thank you so much for listening. This is your Achmiel Garfield. Have a wonderful day.